0: If you enjoyed the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal, which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircurrentreview.tv forward slash donate, and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. What was it like transitioning to the GR1?
1: Uh, I mean, the actual transitioning bit itself was not real. I mean, Tornado was a brilliant aeroplane, a fantastic aeroplane. It was nice to be able to see out the window, but also a bit challenging. You know, get used to the idea of being able to see where you're going again or, and everything else. So, but uh, a great aeroplane all around Tornado. The challenge really was having done this role here, where you had that level of independence and responsibility, including real operational tasks at that time as well. And every sortie you came back, you were judged against what you'd done. It was a little bit different when you get to a tornado that, uh, yeah, you fly a pair, a four-ship, or an eight-ship, whatever. So you're always going with somebody else. You're never going very far. The level of responsibility is lower. um, And, you know, you you fly around the country, you pretend you hit the target by looking at the radar film, whereas I could tell where I got the target or not by looking at the actual film. And then when you go to the range and you bomb on the range, the tornado system was so accurate that if you were missing the target by very much, there was something wrong with the system. And it wasn't you, you know, unless you're really a Dallard, because the system was so good. Uh, don't get me right, it wrong, was, it was really very enjoyable, a fantastic aeroplane to go and operate, especially when I got back to Recce Tornado with Two Squadron.
0: Could you tell the power difference uh, uh, from the camera to the Tornado?
1: Of course, I mean, of course there's a, a power difference between it, um, but this thing, it, it flew the speeds it needed to fly to do the job it needed to go and do. You know, people talk about tornado being Mach 2. Very few tornadoes have ever been Mach 2. You don't need it anyway. And you can't even fly Mach 1 at low level. It's stupid. You know, there's a certain speed you can fly at low level at 100 feet that makes sense. So this whole idea of performance, that's really got nothing to do with it. It's got to do really with the ability to get there, hit it, and get back again. Mm. You know, so the speed is just a component of that equation, really. Uh, I really enjoyed my tornado flying. Uh, You know, it was a, a great airplane to go and operate without a shadow of a doubt. But as a lifestyle this was was a better lifestyle as a squadron mm-hmm. and you say because of the place you went and the things you did really
0: did a lot of canberra guys just transfer to tornado quite
1: a, quite a few of the recce canberra guys transferred to tornado um when i first got there in the early 80s i was on the first squadron nine squadron there was a bit of an issue uh, it was a bit of a buccaneer mafia oh, on yeah, the early tornado yeah. um, and so if you're not buccaneer, buccaneer you don't count uh, and so I've you came from Canberra? No, I came from recce Canberra, you know. And so your ideas on tactics and everything else didn't count because you didn't count. Whereas for us, our whole aim of this thing is don't be found. Whereas some of the fast track guys wanted kind of to be found. So some of the extreme maneuvering they would do was really kind of giving their, themselves away. Whereas we would try to well, sneak around. Sneak around and don't get found. Uh, and that kind of didn't go well down well with some of the guys on the on the squadron.
0: So did you ever fly the Tornado in live theatre?
1: Uh, I didn't fly in the Gulf War, I went in Dural, Op Dural. So, uh, yep, not the same as some of my colleagues who've been heavily engaged, because obviously most of my Air Force career, up till 94, we were really still Cold War, um, which was very much a, both sides knew what the other could do and both sides left each other alone. Mm-hmm. It's only with Gulf War I onwards, when the Air Force has been operational every day of every year, that things have been, you know, more uh, entertaining in that respect. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really see much of that. I mean, I've been to some interesting places in this, some which I can't talk about. Um, but yes, tornado wise, yeah, I did Dural and, and, and that was that.
0: But you enjoyed it, I'm sure.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, you, you, you do what you do and you try to get the best performance out of, out of the airplane and, and the crew you fly with. And, and certainly there some, some challenges operating the airplane. Flying Tornado was relatively easy, both front and back. Operating the airplane in complex scenarios, especially if you're the package commander for a lot of airplanes, is where it really becomes a, a challenge. Mm-hmm. And we always said that if it goes according to the plan, it's actually quite boring. It's only when it starts getting different, the plans to change. You go to a tanker for a two, two point tanker, you get there, only one hose is working. What do you do? Do you take less fuel? Do you take, how do you, what do you do this? Because what matters is, the time on target isn't gonna change. How many people do you get there? on that time is all you can bury yeah we have one over uh, iraq where our f-16 sweep uh, suddenly decided they weren't going to come oh. so you've got to say well actually i'll i'll swing roll the f-18s to be the fighter sweep and i'll lose that siad component from the F-18s because the F-4Gs can pick up the slack from that. So while you're sitting there on the tanker, you're juggling all these things deciding what to do. You can't go, well, stop the clock, I want to go home. <laughs> You've got to juggle it and, and make that work. So those bits became more interesting. We didn't have that with this because really we never dealt with anybody else. We went on our own to set our own thing. So juggling all those things to make it work was was quite interesting. And when I was an instructor at Finningley those are the kind of things you try to build in the scenarios for the students. It's not can you cope when it's all going according to plan? It's can you cope and not give up when it stops going according to plan? Mm-hmm. And that's what matters.
0: So Ken, you also had other roles such as squadron historian. How did that come about?
1: Well, it came back. So I arrived on the squadron in, uh, in 1977 and uh, every month the squadron has to write a document called the operational record book. And they have a squadron historian that does that and anything else. And I arrived on the squadron they hadn't done it for six months. And because my degree was ancient history and archaeology, the boss decided I'd be the closest into a squadron historian. <laughs> so I started doing the ORB. Um, I then started also looking at the history of the squadron. And, and 39 had a really interesting history. And bearing in mind, in 1977, there were still guys around from World War I, the interwar period, and of course, a lot from World War II. So we organised a squadron reunion in 1978, and had about 100 uh, old boys and their wives and, and girlfriends came back. And it was phenomenal. To actually look at the history of the squadron and and listen to the matter-of-fact way some of the guys talked about what they what they'd done in world war ii so that's how i got into my first book my first book was called the Wing bomb the history of the squadron and that was only because of all the great stories i'd picked up from being on on 39 talking to all the veterans there that
0: must be brilliant and you're also the founder of the aviation His, uh, history research center can you tell
1: us about that yes yeah, so, so again having done the, uh, the 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 piece on 39 i then kept that whole aviation history bit going up to that point i hadn't really bothered too much about it but i then realized that a lot of these stories were being lost and that we needed to capture the stories and share them so I then got writing articles for flypass magazine you know, writing other books and so on eventually became editor of flypass magazine as well for for a number of years uh, and now they're about 50 odd books as well but then i started saying well actually with the move to the digital era and online stuff then the ability to share things is important. So we formed the, the AHRC bit based on that, really, that people can then share documents, photographs, stories, and then we can, we can reshare them. So that's, that's the idea behind that AHRC bit. And part of what we're doing here now with Russ and with the Station headquarters Quarters building, is that there'll be a, an aviation research center inside the, the building here as well.
0: Nice stuff. And you mentioned your books there. Where can we find them online?
1: I think generally, uh, I think about half of them are still in print. They're, they're all pretty much online. You can find them occasionally, put them on AHRC. Uh, my son's company, Wingbombed uh, Customs, he produces, uh, sells the books as well on, on his site. So you find them if you go to Wingbomb Customs, their website has got them on. Um, and most bookstores. In fact, I delivered some this morning to East Anglia Books, Marilyn. She's got some today that she's selling at a show at Skolthorpe. Clean. That's what you see, if you go in the kit, your suitcase goes in there. It's very small. Right?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that's the room about, you know, of beer, box of wine. <laughs> yeah, <they can't> <laughs> yeah. Mm. the pot and stuff. You see everything's been around so long, you get all sorts of interesting old things. So we are in one box. Okay, so from your position now sitting inside the, the airplane, you're sitting on the bank seat. So obviously you're sitting in a black hole, but if you needed to get out, you've got a handle between your legs, one above your head. And in theory, then what will happen is the hatch above you will, will separate and go. If that doesn't, an explosive cord will detonate the hatch and blow the hatch up. If that doesn't work, you'll actually punch through the hatch. At least that's what it says on the on the tin. <laughs> if you look forward now to where you are, this is where the navigation piece sits. This big orange piece here is the actual recce viewfinder. So under the nose is a prism, and you've got a handle on the right-hand side. allows you to turn that to look fully forward, which is what we use at low level. Vertically, which is what we'd use doing any of the medium level stuff because you're not tracking the camera at medium level You're tracking the airplane over the ground and then you know the angle that the the camera is looking at So that's how we calculate the standoff from the target We want to know which target we're at what height can we fly and then we actually track a line on the ground through the tram lines on here I can actually turn it backwards as well and see under the airplane So I can actually see the underside of the fuselage on this recce site as well, so People often think it's a radar, but it's not. It's a a straight visual viewfinder. The rest of what's on the front, only half what's in here is what was there in my day. So this right-hand side here, basic flight instruments up here, they've not changed. The main nav computer here is called a TANS, Tactical Navigation System. That came in as part of the late 70s modification. This piece here is missing. This is the Sky Guardian. So that's a radar warning equipment. We had a different one in my day, a straightforward RWE, but that's missing because it was still classified. But we think we found one to put in. This side here, obviously, your main compass, a qm 7 a compass. Fuel. And then down this side, it's missing, is the Omega. So the late-period navigation kit was actually the Omega. And then, because you've got self-defense systems now, you've got a flare dispenser here that allows you to dispense flares and a little um, smiley face drawn on the drawn on the button. And the pilot's got one of those as well. And then while you're sitting in there, the table will come out and sit on your knees and that's where you do all your, all your writing and your, your recording of your in-flight reports and things on the, on the knee. To the left-hand side of you here, this is the camera control panel and this has changed almost entirely since my day. The top set of buttons here, these are the F95 tactical cameras, even though in the later part of the squadron's life they weren't using them, they're still in. But all the other switches I knew, setting the F96 cameras and everything else have all gone. Um, There's a couple other camera settings in here for some of the more modern cameras. This tray here, in my day, was a System 3 in the two aeroplanes we had it, but in later life, again, was a different different camera. And to show you the age of the aeroplane, of course, we have the good old fashioned fuses down here as well. So your first port of call when something didn't work was to go in here and and, and change change the good old fuse. And they're the, the, oh, no, not got one in, but let's find one with a fuse in it. Well, oh, someone's taken all the fuses out. So <laughs> uh, just the big, and now they're all gone. And then on the right-hand side is primarily communications. And again, there are a number of holes in one, three, five, because they were late period. Um, radio communication equipment that has gone. In fact, the biggest hole is actually the oxygen regulator. We've got one of those to go in there as as well. So some of what you see there is, is very old fashioned radios. Some of it is, is more modern radios as well. So primarily that's how it splits down is between radios on the right, cameras on the left, navigation on the, on the front. And obviously if you need to push the hatch off, you've got a handle here. If you were to push that down, that just pushes the hatch off from above your, your head. If you just look over your right hand shoulder, you can see the avionics rack behind you. And if you went far enough back, that's the well the pilot could climb down if he put the autopilot in. We had one guy once put the autopilot in, got down the hole, wiggled forward and tapped the navigator on the shoulder. <laughs> Frightened to death. You don't expect anyone to be able to tap you on the shoulder when you're sitting in this aeroplane. And what did you call these day-night indicators? Yeah, they were, they were euphemistically known as day-night indicators because basically, that all they really gave was an indication of whether it was light outside or dark outside. It isn't, as I say, quite that bad. At low level they were quite good for the targets and of course you have artificial lighting in the aeroplane as well, which we will wire up again in this aeroplane.
0: Brilliant stuff. So We've got some personal questions here from me. Yeah, you can. So do you have any hobbies?
1: Well apart from, uh, well looking after the aeroplane, doing the, uh, the SHQ bit, I'm a trustee of the RF Heraldry Trust so uh, organised units that have badges, official badges, then we research the history of the badge, why is the badge, the shape it is, the colour it is, the, the, uh, the motif and the blazon that they've got on the badge. Because the Air Force has been awarded just over 1,300 badges in its history for squadrons, stations, groups, commands, and the Trust is basically repainting all those badges now to have a long-term preservation for them, of which we've done about 850 so far. And again, the trust will have a, a room in the SHQ here as well. I do that. I'm a volunteer researcher and guide at Marham, Heritage Centre at Marham. Um, yes, yeah, so I've got a few things on the go, yeah.
0: I think I know the answer to this one, but favorite aircraft you've flown?
1: Right, it's gotta be the PR9. But again, if I looked at it operationally from the point of what was the most fun aeroplane, Tornado is the most fun aeroplane. The most fun role and squadron is 39 on the PR9. It's a bit of a double answer, really. Yeah. While I was Flypast, of course, I was very lucky. I flew in Mustangs, Spitfires, B-26s, all sorts of things as well as Flypast editor. And that was, that was quite entertaining and enjoyable, especially flying types where I'd met veterans who've flown them and written stories about them. And so flying in it, or at least even sitting in it, gives you a much better perspective on what they would have done at the time. Mm-hmm. So I, 39th Squadron flew bowfighters fighters in the war, and when I was at the Art Museum on secondment, I was able to get and sit in their bowfighter. fighter. And, and it made a real difference to the understanding of talking to people like John Manners, who'd been a navigator on bow fighters, uh, and some of the stories he told, when you sit in the airplane, it gives you a completely different feeling and view for that story.
0: One you would like to fly either past or present,
1: yeah, that's a good question. Uh, people say, you know, well, what do, I, do I want to go fly in the two Spitfires that are around? Not particularly, I'm not that interested, so in I'm going to fly in a, in a Spitfire. Perversely, actually, one I quite like to go and have going is, is, a, is um, Bristol Fighter. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah. again, because th- again, the 39 Squadron have flown Bristol Fighters, and I've done quite a bit of work on the Northwest Frontier province of India and air power in, in there, and the Bristol Fighter was involved in that. And it's just one of those aeroplanes that has that sort of interest.
0: Yeah, I agree, I agree. So, can we find yourself or any of the projects you're working with online, social media, Facebook?
1: You can. So, I mean, uh, we've got uh, Facebook pages for most of what we do. So, we're about to launch the West Raynham Facebook page now, West Raynham SHQ. That's a, a charities project to develop the building for a research centre and charity use. And so, that's looking for volunteers and eventually donations. Um, this, this one, XH135, as a Facebook page. So that's just look for XH135. And Aviation History Research Centre has a Facebook page as well. So there's various places you can find, you know, find information about that.
0: Yeah, I'm going to link it in the description below. But, Ken, thank you very much for coming on the show. That's
1: right.